We're going to look at the next bit of John, hearing from the good word of God. And we're looking at the question, what is living? And what does it mean to live? When I was a child, grown-ups would tell me I was too young to understand any size. Now I'm a grown-up, but the kids tell me I'm too old to understand. <laughs> what is life? What is living? How are we meant to live? What is the purpose of life? Some of you will know the book um, Generation X uh, by Douglas Copeland. He has a, it's a very negative book. It's a book about those who would now be in their 30s, I guess. Uh, maybe 40s. I've lost track of time. All I know is I'm not Generation X. Um, but this is a quote from it. Most of us have only two or three genuinely interesting moments in our lives. The rest is filler. And at the end of our lives, most of us will be lucky if any of those moments connect together to form a story that would, anyone would find remotely interesting. It's a very negative view of life, and yet I think it resonates with lots and lots of people. Lots of people will feel a sense of pointlessness and, and, a, and a lack of big picture to life. Just kind of going from holiday to holiday, maybe from relationship to relationship. And, you, and, and what is life? One of the things that I was talking with the staff team about is uh, when I was walking on the, the final day of my walk, I was walking into Swansea. Turns out that's quite a long walk. The Bay of Swansea is quite a long way. It's quite a long and, and, and it was a beautiful sunny day, and I hadn't, wasn't aware that I dropped my credit card, so all was good. And you just see lots and lots of people, but I was struck with the sadness, how sad people seemed. On a beautiful day with lots of little bars and ice cream places and lots of things for people to be doing on the beachfront, long, long promenade from the mumbles all the way in but they just felt an air of sadness. Lots of dads with their kids, I'm thinking it's Saturday, it's a day to look after, they're on their phone, the kids are screaming on the beach. What is life about? Are we lucky if we can string two or three genuinely interesting moments in our lives together? But what if God intended something more for us? What if life is meant to be more than two or three moments? What if that we could get to the end of our life and probably not so much that we would be able to remember, but that God could say to us, here, let me show you what your life has done. Here, let me show you what fruit has come from all the seeds you've sown. Maybe if we could take into eternity a life that's well-lived. What is a life well-lived? So I want to park that question, what is a life well-lived? And the second thing I want to do is just think about feelings for a moment. And the feelings, again, that I'm aware so many people, particularly outside of faith, and maybe those of us who've known God for a long time, will struggle to, to know what this feels like. But for many people, life feels precarious. And there is a feeling that they are without a safety net. 
And one of the things that, you know, we're giving away food at the fun day, but we give away food every day. We're exponential growth in the amount of food that we're giving away. And frankly, we're not able to keep up with the amount of food that people need. But one of the things that happens is that many of the people who come uh, come because life was okay and then an illness or relationship breakdown or the loss of a job or something that was fun becomes addictive and maybe choices influence from others, whatever it is, and suddenly life goes wrong and there's no safety net. There's no one to go to to bail them out, to rescue them. Nowhere to return to. And lots of people who don't even come into food bank, but lots of human beings in our culture, I think there's this underwhelming, underneath unease. What's holding me? What's underneath? Do you ever that experience? Um, have you ever gone into really, really deep water, perhaps swimming in the sea, or you've gone in the very deep end at a swimming pool and it's 15, 20 foot, and there's that unnerving feeling if you're not a confident swimmer like me, that unnerving feeling where you think, what's underneath me? I could sink. And I think there are lots of people who feel that, and they feel that there is no one to fall back on. Where will I go if illness hits? Where will I go if I lose my job? Where will I go if this relationship breaks down? Where do I go? And that experience is akin to another experience that many in the room all have had, which is, or have, which is of becoming an orphan. Many of us will have uh, been to the funeral of our parents or one parent, or maybe we have a parent that is no longer able to function as a, a, a mum or a dad in the way that they used to when they were younger. And this sense of discovering that the safety net has gone. And we're on our own now. And uh, certainly, you know, I refer to it perhaps too many times, but my father died 40 years ago. And you, 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 you suddenly feel, well, who will I phone? And my car breaks down. That was the thing. I was, Dad always could diagnose a car from just listening to it. And sometimes, you, you, in those early days, you pick up the phone thinking, I'm going, and then you realize, no, he's, he's not here. And the experience of being orphaned, of feeling that we don't have any more a home to go back to. Many of you will have been through the experience where your parents move house and your bedroom is lost. And you come back to visit them in their new house, and there isn't a bedroom for you. It's gone, because they've downsized, or they've moved house, and they've, they think that you, and, and psychologically, you think, yes, I've got my own house. I live in my own place. I don't need my own, but it's gone, that bedroom that you grew up in, and your posters on the wall, and your school books are in the loft. And there's a sense of feeling orphaned. We're looking at John, we've been truntering through it for years now, and there are lots and lots of things on the internet. Our YouTube site, you can see it verse by verse from the very beginning, at the beginning of lockdown. And Jesus has been talking to the disciples, and he's talked about him sending his spirit. 
Another one like him, a helper, who will live within them and be with them. And all of that's in this morning's uh, video that went up and previous ones over the last two or three weeks. And then he says this, and this is an amazing statement, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. He's going to believe he's going to die. He's going to die within the next 48 hours. He's going to be arrested within moments. And he's saying, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Now, in a sense, we might be familiar with him saying that. But he's saying to the disciples, you'll not be fatherless, which is an odd thing to say because he's implying that, they were their, that he was their father, which is another whole talk and another whole thing. But you picked that up from some of the previous ones that I've done about the fatherhood of God and indeed of Jesus. But he says the disciples will not be fatherless. And that leads to a question in my... I always have these questions, and whether they're your questions or not, you're going to get the answer. I think they're questions that we ask. And that is, when he says that he will come to them and they won't be orphaned, they won't be fatherless, is he talking about that period from the resurrection to the ascension? Is it a time-limited period? And if it's only a time-limited period, does that mean that these verses have no relevance to us who are living well after the ascension of Jesus? Or is this idea of Jesus not leaving us alone, of us not being orphans, is that something for you and I 2,000 years later? Well, if we look at the context, we will see that it's quite clear what he's saying. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, one the same as me, another helper, somebody alongside you to help you, who will be with you forever, the Spirit. He's going to say, look, I'm going to the Father. These are the verses immediately before this verse. I'm going to the Father, but you will have the Spirit. And you know him for he lives with you. Now, this is interesting because this is in the current present tense. He's saying the spirit, the advocate that you are going to receive already is with you. In other words, it's, it's me. It's my spirit. It's, it's, it's the presence of God that you've experienced through me. And you get Jesus mixing and matching between father and spirit. And, 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 and there's a wonderful unity that's going on here. But he says, so look, the spirit that you're going to have, he lives with you then. But then he says, and will be in you, which is the future. And this spirit is going to be in them after Jesus has gone, after the ascension. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me. I'm going to look a little bit more at that in the next study, which will be a video that will come out next Sunday morning. But he says, and I am in you. What he's saying is that he is going to not leave us as orphans because he's going to live within us by his spirit. This is not really for the moment between the resurrection and the ascension. This is for the disciples after he ascends. This therefore is for you and I. And therefore he's saying, look, you're not going to be abandoned. You're not going to feel that there's no safety net. You're always going to have me with you by my spirit to turn to. And those of us who had faith for a long time, perhaps we take it for granted that we are not ever alone or forsaken. Ren Collective sing a song, No Outsiders. You are father and there are no orphans. Every tribe and nation gathered in your arm. Oh, my soul has found its home. 
There are no outsiders to your love. So what does it mean to have Jesus becoming father to us or through his spirit or there's not being orphans. I want to suggest there's two practical, two things. First is the practical and the second is what I'm going to call the emotional. The practical is that he's there to help us, that God will never leave or abandon us and that by his spirit he's there to prompt, to guide, to suggest, to convict in our mind. And again, I've looked at this in more depth in some of the other videos and what it means for the spirit to be at work in us saying, don't do that do do this, and giving us strength and giving us resilience and giving us discernment and giving us wisdom and guiding us. And so just as a good parent, and again, we talked before about the the understanding that not all of us have had good experiences of fathers, but just as a good parent is there to guide, to explain what to do, so God will be with us to do that by his spirit. Secondly, there is this sense of an emotional uh, family that God is giving. The sense of belonging. Because one of the things that is, I hear, particularly painful for those who have been orphaned at an early age is a sense of not belonging in other families. And that's a very painful thing. And so when Jesus says, I will not let you be an orphan, he's saying, you will always belong in my family. You will always have a right to come into my presence. You will always be free to talk to me. You belong. And there's a status as a child of God that is coming with that. We will always be his children. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And there's a sense of his presence bringing company And I know that many in the room here would testify that God has been alongside us at difficult moments and his presence has strengthened us and he's given his care and he cares for us. And it's so good to know as we sang in worship, uh, he loves us, he loves us, he loves us. And just to be reminded that Jesus says, you're not orphans. You are not alone. You are not abandoned. Though I will disappear, though I will be unseen, just as in our experiences, though we cannot see Jesus, we are not alone. We are not orphans. But what if life could be more than two or three moments? C.S. Lewis says this. Most people, if they'd really learned to look into their own hearts, would know what they do want and what acutely something Uh, and want something acutely that cannot be had in this world. He's talking about a longing and a yearning. He says, there are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. We're never fully satisfied. If we were fully satisfied, we'd never ever buy anything again. If we're fully satisfied, we wouldn't want anything else, but we're never quite satisfied. The longings which arise in us, he says, when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can satisfy. He says, I'm now not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. 
I'm speaking of the best possible ones. And he's saying that the best possible marriages, the best possible holidays, the best possible careers leave us thinking, this is a taste of something, but there must be more. And he continues, there was something we grasped up at that first moment of longing which just fades away in reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and the sceneries may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job. Apologies to chemists and chemistry teachers in the room. But something has evaded us. There was something we grasped at that first moment of longing, which just fades away in reality. Something has evaded us. I'm doing what I can to prolong my life and hoping someday I'll learn what it's for. And Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that's such an incredible phrase. I have grappled with it for a couple of weeks, and I've rewritten the next part several times, and I just can't do it justice. What it means that Jesus giving us life, the life that comes because he rose from the dead. And I think there are two elements to that. The first is this element of now, the life of the Spirit within us now, on earth, living the life of Jesus, living Jesus' life now. What does that mean? And I was trying to, to get that if, if Jesus has risen and his life is alive, it's alive in his spirit, and his spirit comes and lives with us, bringing the life of Jesus into us. What does that mean? What does that look like? And we, you could all write different sermons to me, and, and you'll all be right. But for today, I just want to say this. There's a joy in loving. If you look at Jesus, he wants to love, and he commands them to love. We talked about this so many times recently. He commands them to love, and the life that Jesus lives is a fundamentally a life of love, and he has a joy in that. That's his purpose. That is his meaning. He has a mission to not only love, but in his love to restore the broken, to set free the oppressed, to be good news to the poor. And that's what he wants to do. Hebrews tell us that for the joy set before him. So this is the life that Jesus wants to put in us, a joy in being people who love, a joy in people who know that we're created to love and called to love, and that therefore we have a joy in redeeming, just as God, as Jesus comes and takes the broken and puts them right and restores them to what God intended. So he calls us, join with him. Live the life he is living. The life that Jesus is living is the life of love for others that restores and transforms and saves and redeems. And there is a joy in that servanthood. There is a joy in serving he says, this is why I came, to seek and to save the lost. And so if we have his life in us, we'll find a joy in being part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. It's a phrase we often used to say in our family when things were kicking off at the tea table. Are you going to be part of the problem or the solution? But... The life that lives entirely for itself 
gets to the end of its life and can only think of two or three moments that were of any value. The life that lives for itself finds that the holidays and the career and the relationships are not enough. But the life that is saying, Jesus, bring your life, your living into me, finds meaning and purpose and looks back from eternity and sees the fruit. Calvin and Hobbes' cartoon for us. Live for the moment, says Calvin, is my motto. You never know how long you've got. You could step on the road tomorrow and wham, you get hit by a cement truck. Then you'd be sorry you put off your pleasures. Uh, That's very much our culture today, isn't it? Now, live it now. You don't know, enjoy the moment. And he says... Uh, to Hobbes. That's why I say live for the moment. What's your motto? And Hobbes says, look down the road. (laughs) And if we think life is about 100% this moment, we'll feel it empty. And Jesus says, look down the road and see what's coming. Because the second part, he says, because I live, you will also live. Is this the resurrection life that he's calling us into. Because he lives, death will not be the end. Because he lives, there is something to come after. And it is a return to Eden. And I was thinking a lot about this, in part following on from uh, Paul's sermon, uh, which you can find on our, on our, our YouTube site the other week, that, 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 we, that heaven is going back to what Genesis 1 Uh, intended. So what does that look like to return to Eden after death, to return to heaven, whatever you want to put it? What it means to me fundamentally to rise to love without sin and sorrow. So if we're saying that we get joy in loving, there are two problems with loving in our life today. The first problem is that people are selfish and we are selfish. And so our love is, is fractured. And there is actually a hurt that happens and a need to forgive and there's selfishness and there's resentment and we have to be patient and we have to be forgiving and merciful and gracious and we long for the moment when it's easy to love because there's no more sin or selfishness and that's the return to Eden. That is the life that is to come without sin and without sorrow because the second part that's difficult about loving is the people we love end up dying or we die. And our bodies decay and we get older and it deteriorates and there's loss and there's separation. And we're rising to a new life where the love that Jesus is trying to teach us now is glorious because there is no sin and no sorrow. And that links into a walk with God in Eden. They walked with God without a barrier. And this idea that in heaven we will know God without fear and without guilt will all be washed away. And so the life that he lives in us to come is a life of relationship with God without feeling unworthy. And lastly, and I think this is an important aspect, it is that in Eden they were told to look after the earth. It's very interesting that heaven was never intended to be a place where we put our feet up and let everybody else wait on us. The original vision is to care for creation 
and to enjoy the beauty of sunsets and mountains and cats and dogs and goldfish and flowers and plants and trees. And I am convinced that heaven is physical. And I know there's a terrible kind of misunderstanding that Christianity's got into. That heaven is some sort of ethereal place where you sit on a, on a cloud and it's kind of gray and it's drab and you sing all the time. And it's a complete misunderstanding. If God spent all that effort, I'm just looking at the beauty of those horse chestnut trees. If God puts all that effort to create beauty like that, how much more is heaven without it? The sin and the corruption of this world. And so if we're rising to that kind of life, that is the life that we begin to prepare for. So the life of Jesus within us, he says, because I live, you will also live, and the, live, the life that will bring meaning is a life of, live, of love. It's a life of walking with God now and receiving his cleansing and his mercy. And in a moment, we're going to share in, forgive, in communion, which is the reminder that he says, I want you to be free from guilt and fear of me. I want you to come and be cleansed. I want you to walk with me. And we begin that, and it's imperfect, but in heaven, it will be perfected. And we need to continue to look after creation. Every time... God says every time I offer them an upgrade, they click, not now. There's lots of ways in interpreting that. But you know, life is okay, but the real life is yet to come. He's offering us an upgrade. He says, if you really want to look back on this life and feel that it made sense and was purposeful, then live it in the light of what is to come. Live the values and the principles. Be part of redeeming and restoring and bringing the kingdom of God in. Some questions for reflection. What does it mean for us not to be orphaned? We're not alone. How does that affect you and I? What's that saying in our week this, this week? where we might feel alone or abandoned or there's no safety net. And secondly, are we living a resurrected life now? Are we living the life that God created it and intended us to have? Because if we're living a life of consuming, consuming relationships or consuming stuff, we're living a life of give me this, we might have two or three moments at the end of our life, but most of our time, it feels pointless. But a resurrected life of serving and loving others and of living ready for heaven is a life of purpose and of meaning. So how is our future resurrected life to shape today?